The, the oat milk thing is like such a new phenomenon. I feel like yeah. everywhere I go now, it's like everybody has oat milk. I know. It's I first met I Ron Pope, the Nashville-based singer-songwriter, while I was living in New York City through some mutual friends. But we really connected after running into each other years later at a coffee shop called Dose in Nashville. Awesome. Well, thank you for bringing this coffee. No problem. And for coming to talk to me today. I'm glad I'm here visiting. When, um... You're very busy. <laughs> you're, like, you're in the show mode, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. It's like a lot of like, uh, Ron not only brought me some delicious iced coffee, uh, but he around. also brought along his cousin Carl, yeah. who was in town visiting. So my cousin is here with us because he surprised me. Who used yes. to, my cousin Carl, who used to come on tour with me all the time. Hi, Carl. Hi, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> well, hi, Grandma. And so Carl, Carl has always said over the years, it's like we've been everywhere and we've yeah. seen nothing. Because we always like yes. wake up, you know, it's like Ron seemed to have unlimited energy. And even with pneumonia, he made the time to stop by my house before his show at the Teragram Ballroom here in LA back in January. But yeah, okay, so this is cold brew. It tastes delicious. And it also um, tastes very caffeinated. Like I feel like, yeah. I feel like since you're halfway through, you're like on an. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You're firing. I'm on a different level right now. Than me. Welcome back to my caffeine withdrawal. I was so happy to not only catch up with Ron, but also to learn more about his experience in the music industry, how he built an impressive career and massive fan following independently starting on MySpace, and how he and his wife Blair eventually formed their own record label, Brooklyn Basement Records. That's awesome. But, you know, it's, most days are the same. Most yeah. of the time it's like, wake up. Got to put on the show, got to do all yeah. the things. It's very structured, but that's by design because, you know, we're at yeah. work. It's like, yeah, it's work. It's fun to get to play. Keith Richards used to say, I would get on stage for free. They pay me to drag my behind all over the world. Right. I have a similar friend who used to say, to, um, it was uh, this guy, Jeffrey, that I worked with actually on Walking Dead, like, just for one season, but he used to say like, they're not paying me for the actual like acting, that's no. the fun part, yeah. but it's like, you know, the going to another city, waiting around, uh-huh. like the, you know, that's what yeah. they're, they're paying you for the time you're just like waiting to, for your time to actually do the thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because doing the thing is fun. Yeah, it's like, that's that's why I, what I like trained my whole life to do. I'm excited to be here, like, it, it, thanks for having yeah. me to do this. Yeah. But it's like, <laughs> otherwise I'm just like spending my day in a place where my family isn't, like far yeah. away from my comfortable bed. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Ron is full of information, so if you're an aspiring musician or artist of any kind, take notes. Carl, you want a chair? You can a chair right here. You want to come? Yeah, come sit. I'm, I'm gonna. If you're here, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna continuously reference you. We might Facetime our grandma. Who knows? Oh my God. He didn't tell anybody. My wife didn't know he was coming. Oh, my God. So you fully pulled off a a real surprise. Like, nobody knew. (laughs) Yeah, We've got a friend named Lion in in South Florida who he, he, you know, he's friends with him. His his brother-in-law's friends with him, too, and a buddy of mine also. And so Lion has been saying, oh, I'm going to come to Atlanta. I'm going to come to Atlanta for for six months. And I've been saying, you got to get Carl to come with you. Carl always says he's going to come out on tour again. He never comes to see me. And then he already had this trip planned, and he surprised me. does, Does he know that you're here? Oh, this is incredible. Oh my gosh, he's just here for you. I know. I woke up, I, this I told him I was like I haven't been this happy like in a month since I left home. This is like the happiest moment of my whole of my whole trip. Yeah. I was like came on the bus. I was so glad. Well, it's funny people you tour with, you create like such a bond. And then sometimes you don't see them just because like your lives don't actually like like you said uh, Carl lives in Florida. Mm-hmm. 
and like you're in Nashville and it's mm. just and sometimes people are going off on new tours or yeah. going you know and like you don't it just doesn't line up and we you were, know we were very close as children like there was oh, a point okay. where I lived on a cot and we're first cousins like we okay 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 we're, so we're you like guys actually grew cousins. up yeah. together yeah, yeah we're in the same town where did you grow up so when we were little kids we lived in New Jersey okay and then he his family moved to Florida okay, and my cool. family moved to Georgia. So I grew up in Florida, in Georgia, he grew up in Florida. And then when I was in high school, we moved there for a while. And then I moved in with his mom for a little bit. And so I left, lived on a cot in his bedroom. Okay, so you guys were almost, I mean, yeah, you were, like were very yeah. close. Yeah. Yeah. And so How that, old were you when you, when that was, you lived with? That was, I was 16, 16, I guess, okay, my junior year. Fun. And so you were like 13, 12, something like that. Like eighth. Yeah. So yeah. And okay. Then, and then, uh, so you moved a bit. You weren't just in like one high school all the way. No, I, well, I, yeah, one... I, I left one my high school for one almost one whole year. Went to school okay. in Florida for one year, and then went back to the same to the same high school. So for George, for Georgia. in Georgia, yeah, I went back okay. to the same town. We moved across the street from where we lived before, but yeah. So we we've always been close. And then at some point, I saw a documentary early on in my career. The, the, the Kings of Leon guys did a documentary, yeah. and their cousin was running their road crew, and um, <laughs> and I got the idea. I was like, Carl's like a guy in a band but he's not in a band you know so he, i was like he would make a lot of sense out here yeah i called, my gran- I called grandpa and i was like grandpa what do you think of this idea and he's like i think this could probably be a good idea i mean if he messes up i'd kill him so you're probably fine yeah <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so and so yeah so uh, that's how it started so first he came out and what did you do merch first you do merch first and then the tour manager like carl was doing a better job than the tour manager and he yeah. was like solving problems so then he became the tour manager and he was a guitar tech also while still doing merch. Yeah. And we traveled like that from, what did you come out, 2011? 2011. Yeah. And we did that for a whole bunch of years. And then, like, you know, we were, that was when we were still, like, in the van, yeah. you know, kind of driving ourselves. I mean, it and, takes a very, I feel like it takes a very particular, like, special kind of person that, like, can be a tour manager yeah. and can be, and is organized and all of those things, but also, like, being on the road and yeah. just all of that. And wanting to be there. And wanting know? to be there and having fun. And yeah. 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 And That's so, so cool. So we did that for a bunch of years, and then because when we got in the bus, you were you were there because we we did we did Nighthawks on the bus and starting in fourteen. Well, we did Europe before that in the bus, I guess. Bus. We did Europe in the bus. So we like went from the the van, like we went from the like sleeping in the Super Eight together, like yeah. sharing a bed. Would like, you guys all share one room, or was it like you know we we have we went from one room, yeah, to two rooms, yes, because there, there's always kind of been you know a bunch of people in the band when our the way that we know each other nate lewick when nate lewick was yes. in the band i think we had graduated to two to two like super eight motel okay. rooms <laughs> like, and um, how big was the, the band though so how many to a room how many of us were there there were there were maybe eight of us traveling together or something at that point yeah and then um and then like we got to the bus together and you know we started touring in europe more together um yeah. so we like we, we did it all and then eventually carl got a grown-up job and decided to stay <laughs> home and i'm still out here with this haircut yeah <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> Yeah. When you were in high school, were you must have been doing music in then no, or I, not really? I was always or, I was always making music, like, but I would say that like I got very very serious about music as a career after I, I went to college to play baseball. Um, oh wow! So you were like an athlete in high yeah, school and yeah, doing all, okay, yeah, cool. I, and, and I went to college to play baseball, and I played baseball for two years, and I was always writing songs. I was in a, I was in a band at that point as well, and then. Uh, after I couldn't play baseball anymore, I transferred to NYU. I joined a songwriting circle. Okay. And that was really like... What were the, you studying at NYU? When an- did you pick Anthropology. A- okay. Um, and so what happened was when I was at NYU, I, I didn't have any friends because, you know, all the things that... In general, the stuff that they thrust you into to make friends when you get to college, that's stuff for freshmen. And so as a junior and right. a transfer, I didn't have that stuff. So I was like, 
eating lunch alone every yeah. day. Yeah, and very- NYU is like in the middle of the city. Yeah, they just dropped I went the city. there for one semester. Oh, you did. But so and similar when I was a junior, and mm-hmm. I um I didn't stay, no. <laughs> but I um yeah what felt a little like. I'm in the middle of the city mm-hmm. and I don't feel like there's like a home ba- base. I, I mean, I, I was able to make some really close friends, but I wasn't like, I exactly, like you had to kind of I had to find my that. people. Yeah, and yeah. so I started going to everything that I could find, basically. I went to yeah. the poetry club. I went to, like, I got so lonely. I was like thinking about going to events at the Hillel and I'm not Jewish. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, I gotta, I gotta find some people. Yeah. Uh, and so eventually I found a sign for a songwriting circle and I was like, well, I write songs i should go to this i guess you know maybe and when you say you were writing like you were just writing songs for yourself uh, kind like, of i was like, in a band i played, oh, yeah, I played right, out okay, in okay. a band but i wasn't playing out in a band in new york yet i was my, okay my, my band was based in georgia still okay. at that point my it's like with my friends you know from, guys who i knew from, from high, high school, school and, yeah. okay cool and so mostly up to that point i had been playing like when i went home over breaks yeah uh with the, when i was playing out i was playing in georgia and, right. and, in, the, and in the area okay and so then you know when i joined the songwriting circle at nyu I kind of just thought of myself as like a person who wrote songs. I mean, I played guitar, I wrote songs, I was in a band, but it was just like something I did. Like I was also like a person that ate tacos. Like it wasn't like right. A defining it was just like a part of, of your life. just. It wasn't necessarily like an occupation at that point, yeah. or you weren't thinking of it that I, way. Because yeah, I'd like, never known anyone that worked as a musician. Like I'd never yeah. known a person whose job it was to make music. So I knew that I loved music, and I knew that I wanted to make music. And like I would like even in the first two years of college, like I would get my guitar and uh-huh. I would sit in my car because it was the quietest place I could go and I would sit and practice for hours by myself like yeah. in, in between my classes and things like that I was always practicing and I took voice lessons and you know theory yeah. and harmony and counterpoint and stuff like I was learning about music also um, even though I didn't major in it um, taking guitar lessons and, and you know all of that stuff but I guess I just didn't know like I had never met anyone with a job in music, so yeah. I never considered it as like a job. Because what did your parents do? Do they do any music no, nothing, or were they music fans? There. Or you know, they they all like my mom and my dad like like really love music. My stepdad is a super music fan. He plays yeah. guitar a little bit. Okay, and, and so he was the first person to try to teach me to play. I didn't listen, but he tried. So uh, he tried to teach you when you were a like kid, ten and then, years old. Okay, he, he and tried, you were like, "This is not." Yeah, um, <laughs> he tried to teach me when I was maybe ten or eleven, and then I mean, I I, I kind of gradually took to playing guitar over yeah. over time yeah um so i fiddled with it a lot as a, yeah. you know, at different times and then like i would say um you know i got progressively more serious about it as it yeah. went but yeah so i uh you know in college i was very serious about playing and stuff but i didn't know i didn't think about music as a job and then i got to yeah. nyu and i joined this songwriting circle and i was surrounded by all these people many of them were older than me like there were graduate students and people who had taken you know two years off to go on tour and stuff like that like people who had made records and who knew you know famous musicians who had opened in you know theaters and arenas and things like that it was um you know a group that was fairly accomplished and then there was also like other kids like me who just wrote songs yeah and in that circle i guess i kind of came to realize through the way that they all looked at me, that I was different. You felt like what maybe you were presenting and things was like special or like you could tell yeah, like you were like were really treating, taking to. They were treating yeah. me very differently. Like everybody, like they were like, you're a songwriter. Like some of these yeah. people write songs, but you're a songwriter. Like yeah. there were weeks and I didn't, I didn't know that this was no, abnormal because I was doing this my whole life, but there were weeks where like we would, you know, sometimes 25 kids would show up. Sometimes there were just a few of us, but sometimes there were as many as 25 or 30. And there were weeks where 25 people would show up uh-huh. and no one else would have written any songs that week and I would have written 10. Wow. And so they were like, you are writing songs yeah. constantly and many of them are good. You're a songwriter. Like you should yeah. be a songwriter. 
I was like, how do you be a songwriter? What does that even mean? Yeah. Um, Had you met anyone now that you're in this songwriting circle? Did you did you meet? Was there anyone in particular that you met that was like, oh, okay, this is their job. Like, this is something that you can do. Like, was there well, a person that my, sort of was like, oh, you can. That person has that job. That could be a job for me or, you know, that could be the the the, the two people that, that influenced me at that point the most yeah. in, in the circle. There was one. Her name was Julie Lloyd, and now she is Julie Deloyd. Um, and Julie, uh, she and her wife, they combined their names. They were oh De- Deloitte and Lloyd, and, and so they became Deloyd. I love okay. it. It was really a good idea, and it's a good name. I like it. But anyway, yeah. Julie, her, she was Julie Lloyd then before she was married, and um, Julie had been on tour a bunch, like had records out and stuff, and, and so I could see like, you know, she was she was like doing it for real. She yeah. came back to finish school, but she had taken some time off. She had traveled around, and she had been touring and she had like real like cds that you could hold in your hand yeah you know and this is 2003 i guess when i met her so i didn't have friends that had like real professional pressed records with yeah with the real packaging like all she had she had a website and so she Mm -hmm. and the, the president of our group was named marissa levy and marissa also she had a website she had real cds and you know that sounded good and yeah. like that were made with professional musicians and with real engineers and studios and stuff and so meeting those people um who like thought i was good and that what i was doing was worthwhile that was really quite important it was like a significant moment yeah and a lot of the people that i still work with today like i was talking about my friend paul hammer who's on this tour who is friends yeah. with your friend curtis yes. and paul and i met in this circle we became friends really? in the songwriting circle. So you still are, I mean, you're still working with yeah, him. I mean, and he's, he's one of my one of my best friends. Yeah. He tells me where to get coffee every day. Wow. Um, and that is so cool. Zach Berkman, who co-wrote many of my most popular songs with me, including A Drop in the Ocean, which is my most popular song, obviously. Um, Zach Berkman, I also met there. He, he was a freshman when I was a senior. Okay. And the first meeting of the year in our songwriting circle, everybody was taking turns playing one song. And so went around, you know, and they're freshmen. So most of the songs are terrible because they yeah. just got to college. They're 18 years old. Nothing's ever happened to them. But yeah. he played a song and I was on the other side of the room and I stood up and I pointed at him and I went, you, you're with me. And he got up and he walked across the room and he sat next to me and he's been sitting next to me ever since. Oh it's my been, God. you know, 16 years since I did that. I'm, I'm curious, the songwriting circle, I, I do think sometimes, um, at least for me or just artists, all different kinds of artists, actors, there can be sometimes this sense of like, you can feel a little isolated at different times in of your course. career. And like, so the idea that there was like this songwriting circle and like community is really appealing to me. Do you know, was it like NYU or was it? Yeah, it was, it was an, it, this is ridiculous, but the, it in, was called, it was an NYU sponsored club and it, it was called SAPS, S-A-P-S, okay. the Songwriters <laughs> and Performers Society. Okay. And so, yeah, which is, I mean, it's hysterical, like a bunch of kids writing, writing about their feelings in a group called Saps. But yeah, um, but yeah, it was really, really beneficial. And it informed the way that we make music to this day, because we learned the language of constructive criticism in this circle. Yeah. Right. You could sing a song and then people would immediately sort of be like, oh, that resonated with me or it didn't. Or, and, well, and or, people could speak. We all had to learn to speak in concrete terms about what we like what our opinions were of a song. Like we couldn't just say, yeah. I don't like the bridge because that's not constructive. You don't help anybody by yeah. saying, I don't like the bridge. You could say things like, have you considered trying something like this? Or I would really love to hear the chorus lift more. What if you started on the five chord? Like, have you considered yeah. this? Did you think about this? 
Um, would you consider possibly like looking at the way that the rhyme scheme is here, maybe trying it the flip, but you know, yeah. like, things like that, like trying to offer concrete things rather than saying like, I don't like this or just saying, I really like such and such, like trying to think of concrete ways to explain what we think about the songs. And that's worked like with us ever since then. We, we yeah. carry that same language now. And, you know, Paul is, you know, and, and, yeah. and Zach and I are, are you know, writing songs as our job and yeah. and we workshop each other's songs in the same way that we did, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I guess it probably helps develop a little bit of your taste because you know how you just listen to a song and you're like, oh, I like it, but I don't know why or I don't like it. I don't really know what to be able to like really say, why, why is this like hitting me in a certain way or appealing mm -hmm. to me and maybe noticing certain patterns of like what really works for you. Mm -hmm. That sounds so awesome. Like I wonderful. want to take this songwriting class. Yeah, well, well, next time, next time you come to visit, we can get a few friends together and do this. It's, it's, yeah. It doesn't require a club. We can just we can just call a bunch of people and we can sit in my my living room and do this well, whenever you want to. To me, this sounds different than because what I'm more used to, like when I started writing songs, I would first it was just for myself, but once I started showing people, it sort of went to this like, oh, now we'll set you up for sessions. Mm -hmm. And to me, sessions felt a little more like, oh, we're trying to make this quick song. Like that yeah. seems. I don't think I was quite ready for it. Yeah, you this, know? this isn't like a this isn't like going on a co-write. It's like yeah, it's like you developing bring your songs. what you are yeah. making, and it's like, yeah, and everybody kind of agrees in these things. It's it's like it's not like where you know you get in a, in a room in Nashville and you, you sit with three other writers and everybody you know you split the song in three at the end and that's it. This yeah. is like my friends and I were sitting around sharing our ideas, and so we, we were workshopping songs, but we weren't like. Like you, you didn't leave with somebody having a co-writing credit on your right, song, right? No, unless yeah. unless they, you know, like Julie they Lloyd rewrote it for. They yeah. were like, here, let me let me take a yeah. Like Julie Lloyd, we, we I I have a song called Snow Song, and she workshopped it up for us once, like and gave us a lot a lot of ideas and really helped us. But we were like, well, do you want a, a credit on this? You know, and she yeah. was like. No, like I just was like throwing ideas at you. Yeah. Like, this wasn't like for a co-writing purpose. I'm just helping you workshop your song. Yeah. And so I think that's also like that made it uh, different in that it was like it's not it didn't feel like work. It felt like sharing. And because we were yeah. all doing it for each other and assisting each other rather than like, you know, going on a Nashville co-write. It's like, you you know, so they put you with a stranger. It's like a you sit in a room. Th yeah. And, and they, you're like, they might have two other rights that day. And yeah, it wasn't like that. It was like my friends were together and we would we were helping each other. I don't really do a lot of co-writing okay. anymore in Nashville. Like in that way, I tend to not write with strangers so, so much. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, I just made this record where all the songs are so personal yeah. that I found like I was co-writing through the process and I found that like nothing that I wrote, like I wasn't able to access the things I was trying to say when yeah. I was writing with other people. And so I found that with the exception of, I do have one co-write with my friend, Emily Scott Robinson, uh -huh. but we're close friends, very simpatico. And she understood what we were working on. Yeah. And so she came and it was like, it was very natural and very easy, but that's like, we're close friends. We, uh, you know, I was writing all these songs. The, my new record is called Bone Structure, and the, all yes. the songs on the record are either me speaking to my daughter about my experience being her father so yeah. far, or uh, me telling a story from my own life with some kind of narrative that I thought yeah. there was value to. And so, you know, Emily, because we are we're close friends, we we're just able to kind of like find a, a place where we landed on a story that made sense. And I kind of felt like because she's like, I think that she's like a overwhelmingly gifted songwriter, and, and, yeah. and she's a like a wonderful, intelligent, powerful woman. I was like. 
you know, there could be there could be worse things to do than to sneak in a co-write with a with a woman that I think is so exceptional on a record that's directed at my daughter. Yeah, um, that's awesome. But otherwise, yeah, I wasn't like going out and doing you know fifteen writes a week trying to you know get you know like guys who wrote Kenny Chesney songs to get cuts on my record. Like I don't right. I, and, but there there is a place for that, and a lot of people sure. in Nashville love love you know Zach Berkman, who's like I said one of my dearest friends in many years. Zach's you know some weeks is writing is writing fifteen songs. And, yeah, and that's that's a skill too. Just be able yeah. to like conti- you know to. Yeah, put his, out that much material his and, energy is boundless it's yeah it's, <laughs> and his creativity seems to be virtually limitless like he can just do it again and again and again and yeah i find you know i mean i've been writing songs now for for more than 20 years and yeah. i find that like um as i get older and then uh, you know i i i'm i'm figuring out more and more what i'm trying to say for me and so i have right. less and less time and energy to use my creativity for anything other right. than that because that's so important to me now yeah you were saying like when you did that songwriting circle, you were doing 10 songs a week. Do you feel like now it's more like you were saying now you're conserving your, do you have moments where it's, it's not like that fa- oh, fast, yeah. oh, you yeah, know, absolutely. and you feel like you go through I mean, like different I, Yeah, I wrote, and- you know, mostly growing up, I would write two or three songs every week for many, many, many years. Yeah. And then after the the baby was born, was really the first time in my yeah. life that I, so my daughter is about two years old. And so yes. in the, the first few months after she was born, we, we took four months off from, okay. from work. And my wife, Blair, we have a, you know about this already, but for yeah, no, we might talk yeah. about it though later. Cause I was like, I want you to tell this story of like her being your man. I mean, yeah. manager and all yeah. of that, but first, yeah, go yeah, ahead. So, and so my wife runs, runs, we have a label called Brooklyn Basement Records. We do marketing partnerships with artists outside of that she's a manager she's a powerhouse in the music industry and a superhero we, but we decided to take four months off mostly stay at home uh yeah. you know after the baby was born and like get to know her you know yeah. so we got this brand new roommate never yeah. met her before seems interesting figured we'd spend some time together i mean and also it's like you know they grow so fast and things change so quickly when they're that little it felt mm-hmm. like it felt very important to us to, to be around all the time and so at first i couldn't write any songs at all like ever, like yeah. not a single, I, I wasn't like, you know, normally I'm like, were you not as like motivated? Like you weren't trying to, or did you, would you sit down at the piano or guitar or whatever and just be like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or So there are a lot of ways that I come to songs and yeah. none of those ways was, was happening. Like, yeah. it, like sometimes I'm just like, I'll hear something and I'll hum a melody into my phone or, you know, I used to use a voice recorder. Now I use my phone or I'll, I have, you know, notes I write down or I have yeah. a notebook. And so there's often like running lists of lyrics and things like that. And that, none of that was happening. And I, I didn't feel compelled to like sit down and try to write. You know, it's just like I was, first of all, I was very tired. Um, yeah. and so that was part of it. But also I just was like, I was doing real stuff. Like it's generally hard for yeah. me to write when something is very significant and happening in my life. Like, you know, I, I don't like, I could write about getting my heart broken, you know, 15 years ago, but in the middle of getting my heart broken, I wasn't generally writing about getting my heart broken. Right. You know, it's like hard to write about stuff when you're doing it. Right. For it's me. more like afterwards once can you reflect. can kind of reflect and yeah. you knew what you thought about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I find similar. I feel like sometimes I, I it's like I can't in the middle of it because I'm still mm-hmm. figuring out even how I feel, you yeah, know, co- how course. I feel about it. But and, and so in those first handful of months, I couldn't write any songs. And after a while, I started to get scared. I was like, <laughs> yeah. And I was telling Blair about this. I was like, I don't know. Like maybe it's maybe it's just shut off. Like maybe this is it. And she was like. She didn't tell me this, but later on she was like, at the time, after a while, when you really didn't write any songs for months, I was like, whoa, maybe this is it. <laughs> like, like, he's that's it. That's you it. did it's all the songs that yeah. you had yeah, in your brain. Like, just, uh, he, he, we, rung, we rung him out. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I've made, like, I've put out more 
records than James Taylor, and he's older right. than my dad. I was know? trying to how many? So this new one, Bone Structure, will be what? What album is this? I don't know. I always have to count. So, okay. So because I did, <laughs> I put out. Because when the, was the first one you put out? The first one that I put out with. So I was in a band called The District. Paul was in the band. Zach okay. was in the band. A bunch of my friends were in that band. It was like the. Chris Keenel, who had been in my band growing up, he was also in that band. It was a con- like the continuation of my childhood okay. band with my grown-up friends. Okay. We kind of put them together and started a band in New York. And so I put out... The first record that I put out with them was in 2004. Okay. And so the, the first record is just called The District. And then my first solo album comes out in 2008. That's called Daylight. And then there's lots of them, honestly. Like I did, yeah. I did... Two studio albums with the regular iteration of the district, and then two more studio albums where we all take turns singing lead together like the band, which is oh, what we cool. always wanted to do. Yeah. So there's four studio albums with them, and we did a Christmas EP at some point. And then there's Daylight, New England Sessions, whatever it takes. He's, 15, he's getting... Uh, oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> it just keeps going. I don't know. I mean, because like for some of them also, like the, the proper studio albums go, I know that that's Daylight, New England Sessions... Uh, whatever it takes, Atlanta. No, Atlanta. Calling off the dogs, Nighthawks. Work and Bone Structure will be, I guess, my eighth studio album. Yeah. But in the middle of that, I did, like we did a project where. We so call- you're always. I mean, you're pretty prolific. So yeah. it's like to have this time where you're not is definitely. Yeah, it was terrifying. Different. Yeah, like, yeah. We did a project one of the years that we were on the road where I put out an EP on a Tuesday, and then the next twenty five Tuesdays after that, I put out. A, a single every single week for so it was 26 weeks in a row we did half the year yeah we put something out new every tuesday yeah and that's in addition to doing these albums and and you know, touring and we did yeah yeah oh yeah we we recorded a an ep because we had a day off in utah once like we, oh, wow. we've always been like pretty you know like for a long time it was like for me like continuously releasing content was sort of the king i mean i was I was there kind of at the beginning, like before the word social media existed, yeah. I, like I was. Yeah, because I mean, 2003, 2004, like that's when you're yeah. doing the songwriting circle and then you're starting to like release music. I mean, that's before, that was still like MySpace. Yeah, so my- I was like, I used, I well, I moved to New York in like 2006 uh-huh. and that's what I remember going on MySpace and loving all of the, uh, all the MySpace artists like was like Colby Calais and like mm-hmm. all the people you could like find. So like yeah. Colby, Colby and I got popular on the internet in the same period and this is like before people were becoming popular on the internet yeah so like, we didn't even know what it really was like did you have a you had like a myspace page then yeah, for your so music? I, yeah there was a there was a period in 2007 where so I, w- I was in a band like i said my central thing was that i was in a band and then yeah it, but i had made some acoustic recordings in my bedroom and then okay. i put them out under my my name um, okay. because it didn't sound like my band and so my brother is a technology early adopter kind of person so my okay. brother on MySpace, my brother's MySpace was myspace.com backslash John. That's how early my brother was on MySpace. Okay. And so my brother. The, the John. Yeah, the yeah. John, like original John. <laughs> and so so my brother and my my another of our cousins keyed me in on MySpace. So I made a MySpace for my band and I made a MySpace for my solo project. And this is like very early on. Yeah. And so by 2007, you know, my soul, like I didn't want to, I didn't want a solo project. I'm air quoting. This is a podcast. I, I'm yeah. air quoting, but I didn't want a solo project. I, I was a band guy. Like I wanted to yeah. play lead guitar and like, you know, play solos behind my head and get sweaty and jump up and down and yeah. f- sing the songs in front of my band. But in 2007, we crossed this kind of place where like I'd had a MySpace going for the solo project for maybe two and a half years at this point. Okay. And it had been like gradually building and gradually uh-huh. building. And then we reached this kind of tipping point with these early adopters where we got a bunch of these people and it was like the first Monday 
in October of 2007, I had like 100 listens on my solo page. Uh-huh. And then the next Monday I had 1,000. And the next Monday I had 10,000. And the next oh Monday I got 100,000. And then all of a sudden I was like the most popular unsigned artist in the world. Like, What's, bang. It's crazy too. And it's it's one thing that is pretty awesome about the internet is that whole re- real time of like, yeah, just watching it go up and yeah. being like, oh my God, this is work. You can see right away mm-hmm. like what is Yeah, and that was you know, a place working. I felt like where the... Like that's like social media's age of innocence where people were able to like uh, directly share things and people weren't jaded. They weren't like, oh, this is a bot. Like I was, you know, I started to share this music one person at a time by saying like, I'm Ron. I'm not a robot. Like you're wearing a green shirt holding a white dog in your picture. So I'm I'm a real person. I see you and I see that you like these bands. So I'd love your opinion on this song I just released. And that's kind of how I did it, like one to one. And then I would, you know, if people got excited about it, I would ask them to share the music with their friends. Like you to actually reach like out that kind of one at a time and so yeah. that's really how it started and then from there i was like okay so all these people are listening but i'm like like living in like this you know four bedroom apartment with a whole bunch of dudes and like yeah you know in a, in a bad neighborhood um how do we get money from this <laughs> right how people are listening to my music but how do i actually like make yeah. money from music yeah. and luckily my friend jake was in the first round of interns at TuneCore. Okay. And TuneCore is a digital distribution service that you can yeah. use to put your music on platforms, you know, on the internet. And it was very new then. And so yeah. he told us about it. So I put my music on iTunes and all the places that you could buy music at that point. And so then it went from like, I was making music trying to, you know, I was touring with my band in a van playing for three people in a sushi restaurant and stuff. It went from that to I was selling tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and then millions of, of digital iTunes. tracks. Yeah. And so it became a job like very very quickly from that point and then yeah and that was kind of when like all the major labels started to circle around us and, yeah. and that kind of stuff and um you know we, we toyed with that for a little while we did a year on universal and that didn't really uh suit our needs at yeah. that juncture because they didn't really like and what really year would any, that have that been? was 2009 we did okay 2009 into 2010 we did a what did you deal. learn like what about that experience was different like you signed with them mm-hmm. and i'm sure that was pretty i mean i feel like getting a record deal is kind of like one of those where you're like oh that's what i want yeah. if i'm an artist but what ended up not really working i learned from this yes. this experience that anyone that you work with has to have some sort of tangible plan to add value to what you're doing and if they don't have a really concrete way in which you can see that they're going to add value then they're not it's not a sensible partnership for what you're doing and that's true in anything you know it's like yeah if you wanted to open a pizzeria and i wanted to open a place that sold knitting supplies Mm -hmm. we probably shouldn't be in business together like you have to line up your vision you have to line up your vision yeah yeah, and if and if it's not very clear how you're going to work together and make it make sense then like it's you know in this age like you don't need a stamp on your ass that says like property of such and such a record label or publishing company in order to spread any kind of art you know you can you don't need the gatekeepers necessarily and so i think what i learned was like if someone can't articulate how they're going to add value for you um, then they probably don't have the capacity to and so they like they not only do they not add a dime worth of value in the time that i spent with them you know really it cost me momentum it cost me money it cost me you know a lot of things um momentum like did you just feel like you were waiting around for waiting. approval kind yeah, of yeah when, when you're when you're signed to a major it's it's a lot like or at least my experience it was like being in middle school mm-hmm. i knew exactly what i wanted to do but i always had to ask for money and permission right and uh you know since my music was making
making money, I didn't need their money. Like I could have very well just yeah. gone and continued doing what I was doing. And like, there's there is value. Like when you look at like yeah. Lizzo as a for instance, you don't get Lizzo without a major label. Like a major label, no one climbs the, the to the top of the mountain without the assistance of a major. Like even if you're not signed directly to a major, you're using the radio department of a major or something yeah. like. But there you go. Like that would add, like if you have gotten to a certain point and radio costs a lot of money, Mm -hmm. then like that's, and if the record label's like, you need radio, this Uh could really do well, then they're, they're adding a value. There's something tangible and they're going to, and if they say, yes, this is something we're going to do for you for sure or something, you know, it has to be, yeah, you have to, like one of the things that, that we are very focused on at this juncture in our business, like what Blair is really means, you know, means when she says is that. We only want to work with people where we can add value. It's, so she yeah. started doing these things, these marketing partnerships, where essentially, and I've, I've already talked to you about this, but we're in this podcast, so I'm going to tell no, everyone else. No, you tell me <laughs> again, and I'm going to ask you again how you met Blair and all that too. Yeah. But so, but the, what we're doing now, essentially, we realized like we started a record label because Blair was managing artists, and and yeah, and then they would run into roadblocks, like the label they couldn't find a deal, or they couldn't find somebody to release the music the way they wanted to. They, they yeah. didn't know, you know, they they would have all these roadblocks, and I was writing and producing. And we had, it would have similar issues where like, you know, I'd spend a bunch of time working on a record for somebody and then it wouldn't come out um, because of yeah. any number of issues. And then we realized if we like because we were assen- essentially running a label for me, we could just be a record label and we could start providing all those services for people. And yeah. then in one house, you know, we could shape the branding. We could help something go from it doesn't exist to it's in the world with, you know, the variety of kind of skill sets that we have. But at first you know, the only way that we could imagine how to package this was as a, a conventional record label where we, you know, and, and for people who don't know, like a conventional record deals, the, the most basic idea is record label gives you money. You make recordings with that money. And then the record label owns those recordings forever. Like that's yeah. record. Your master recordings are owned by the label. That's like essentially the, the most basic, you know, idea of what a record deal is. And we realized in the last you know year and a half or so, we're like, it's kind of counterintuitive like we got into this because we were staying independent and doing all this stuff ourselves and so anyway so Blair realized that we could do these marketing partnerships where essentially we offered all the services of our label but it's like for a set amount of time and then people pay us to do that and mm-hmm. then they still own their recordings and they're like they're getting the services that we offer right and so they you know it's concrete they're like we need a, a new bio we need to you know rebranding we need the website to look different we need to fix this you know yeah. we need to you know the 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 rollout the plan has to be shaped we don't we've never uh, put out a record we need a plan that lasts for a year what when yeah. when do we do this there's a lot of things that like we have experience in you know that p- other people don't that it's, it's, yeah. it's valuable but we didn't feel like it made sense to then uh, leverage that to own people's recordings forever anymore and so that's something that we've been we have been uh, you know, actively kind of changing about our, our business model. I mean, and I, I say we like Blair is doing this. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm mostly like, yeah, mostly like that's a good idea. Yeah, do that, great man. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like a cheerleader in the background. So okay, so your iTunes is doing great and all of that. When did you meet Blair in all of this? And you're, are you? How long were you still still living with the a bunch of dudes? The bunch of dudes, and then yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so Blair and I, this is. This is adorable. Um, <laughs> it is. We it's love a good, like, love story on yeah. here. Let's do yeah. it. <laughs> coffee and love stories. Yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. 
Late night with Emily. <laughs> yeah. And so, no, Blair Blair and I met when we were children, actually. We met when, oh, we, were, okay. met when we were 12 we, years old. Yes, okay. But we were just like casual acquaintances. We had classes yeah. together. And certainly, like, we, we were the sort of acquaintances where, like, I mean, we were, in, we were in a small class together every year from when we were 12 until when we were 18. So certainly, like, if I saw her across the street somewhere in a city that I had never been, yeah. I would have been like, that's Blair Clark, and I'm going to cross the street to say hello right. to her. Right, okay, yeah. Um, but she wasn't like a, a friend she of She wasn't mine. like your best friend. No, she was just somebody yeah. I knew and I had classes with every year. And like, you know, I could have picked her out of a lineup if she robbed a liquor store. You right. Know, <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, she was moving to New York when we were 23 and I was on tour all the time. Then like doing my starve to death, eat bologna tours. Uh, okay. with my friends. <laughs> this is the Super 8. <laughs> we're sharing a room. Oh yeah, man, okay. this, is, this is before the Super 8. This is sleeping on people's floors. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, she, um, she messaged all, like she only knew a handful of people that lived in New York and she was moving to New York. And so she messaged uh, all of them. I was one of them and it took a few months for me to be back at home. And uh, so I, I, I think the reason that we're married today is because I was just going out with the intention. I was, you know, 20, I just turned 24. I was going out with the intention of just introducing this nice girl who I knew from where I grew up to my friends because I yeah. I, I thought she had a, had a boyfriend because it said on Facebook that she had a boyfriend. Uh-huh. And so I was just being nice. I wasn't like trying to go on a date with this girl. I had yeah. no in, no romantic inclination. To, you know, I, I hadn't seen her in many years. And so the, we went out to dinner and we were going to go see some of my friends play a show. So we're sitting and catching up and getting, you know, really getting to know each other for the first time. You know, we've had a, a few glasses of wine. And at some point I was like, you know, we're, we're sharing, we're talking, you know. Yeah. And so finally I was like, so how are you and your boyfriend adjusting to living a thousand miles apart now? Yeah. And she, <laughs> 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 oh, my cousin is heckling me from the background, by the way. Uh, and so, uh, but so he, uh, yeah, so I said, you know, how, how are you adjusting to living a thousand miles apart? And she said, oh, actually we broke up. And I was like, oh, really? Did you? And, uh, and so, uh, you know, and so we, we hung out, you know, that night went to see my friends still just as buddies. And then we hung yeah. out again just as friends. And then it just kind of, I asked her on a date and she said she would yeah. go on a date with me. And and so that was that was in 2007. Okay. And she kind of gradually transitioned into being my manager. She worked in the advertising yeah. industry. She worked for television networks in advertising. And at some point it was like, you know, it was a very, I hate to say organic, but it was very organic. Like at no, some yeah. point she was like, I'll fix, you know, you need a poster for this. I can do graphic design. Oh, your website is messed up. I, I know how to do that. Oh, this is, and like, yeah. I, you, need, you need a professional person to take this phone call. I was like managed by a series of. I was going to say, did you have a manager during that time? I had then? a series of really terrible managers okay. um, who like. Really, Would you feel pressure to like, okay, I need to get the next, I need to get a manager. Like if one left and then. Um, you know, it just like, I it guess it was one of those things. It's like when you're young at that juncture, especially like when the conventional music industry still existed more so than it does today, I guess. Yeah. You imagine like, I need a record deal. I need a manager. I need a booking agent. Like, right. you know, these are all things I have to get a publishing deal. These are all things that are a value. Yes. And, uh, and, and all, all, of, all of those things are definitely a value. You just like need people that. They yeah. care and that want to do them and yeah. they can do a good job. Yeah. Anyway, so I had like a series of kind of bummy idiots that were okay. my managers. Yeah. Um, and you know, people, there's there's a certain breed of person in the entertainment industry that want to be cool adjacent. They want to like stand next to something cool happening. Yeah. And a lot of people who work in entertainment are like that, where they're like, I want to be a manager. But what that means is like, I want to stand backstage and drink beer and say, I'm the manager and like, yeah. you, know, meet, you know, meet girls or whatever. You know, they're like, they just want yeah. to be around. But it. again, it's kind of going back to that label thing and it's something the more because one of the cool fun things about doing this podcast is like I feel like I'm learning so much mm-hmm. and 
having people on your team, it's like almost better to not have a manager than to have one that doesn't really share your vision. 100%. And isn't like you said, there's certain ways they're adding value. It's like every manager is different, but you can say my manager does this and this for me that I wouldn't do on my own. Yeah, the, you know, the most important thing is that you, you find someone that in any job that anybody that's going to work with you that does something that you think is valuable. Like yeah. it, it's not like some kind of like, well, I'm managed by this power broker. And so they really, they could, he could call the Eagles on the phone yeah. and see if I could open this stadium show. I'm like, but is he doing that? Is that, yeah. are they, if, you, if they're not calling are they the actually, Eagles. Can you see like ways this last week that they did things that you yeah. wouldn't have been, like that they yeah. did for you, you yeah, know, the, the, can you make a list? Yeah, so I, like, like I would rather have, uh, you know, when Blair started managing me, she had no experience in the music industry, but she was motivated. Yeah. And she was excited and she was invested in, in a yeah. very real way. Yeah. And so we went from essentially it was like she was helping and she was fixing problems and filling in yeah. holes. And then she started taking phone calls like she would, you know, take calls as my manager. So she would like sneak out of her office, take a phone call, go back and, you know, go back to selling advertising. And then over time, we realized this is when Carl and I and, and the boys were out like in the van, like, you know, mm. 300 days a year. After a while, we realized that I was gone so much and she was working so like she was doing two jobs that essentially it didn't make sense anymore for her to go to work at that other job and then also try to do a, you know, being my manager was more than a full time yeah. job as it was. We were essentially running the record label, but, you know, just for my project at that point, yeah. so she was doing all of that you know, being the manager, you know, shaping everything essentially. And, and I was gone all the time. And so uh, we got to 2012 at the top of the year and she decided that she would leave her full-time job in advertising and come manage me. And, you know, we would make a go at this business full-time. And then, yeah. so we did that. And that was when Blair got in the van with us. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Blair, like, Blair <laughs> got in the van and we, we schlepped around the world in a van for a long time. And and we gave up our apartment in New York then, okay. put all of our stuff in storage. And um, and at what time did you guys go? I mean, you're probably getting to this, but like uh, Brooklyn Basement Records, did that become like, besides her just being your manager, but you guys formed well, like a so company. So that's kind of okay. on, the, on the, we're on the way there. Yeah. So okay, that's cool. 2012 <laughs> traveling. We're touring. This is, I think that, was that the first year we went to Europe, 2012? Yeah, so we're touring Europe. Carl's like Carl's like my 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 memory, my conscience. He's many things. He's like my Jiminy Cricket. I love having him here. It's like we have an audience, like a live audience, <laughs> and he also contributes. Yeah. He was away oh, doing a show, yeah. And I helped Blair move up the four. Yeah, walls. I'm in. Oh I'm in. I was in Oslo by myself on an acoustic tour, and and so they were there on this brief break, and we had to get out of the apartment. So Carl had to lead the move out of the apartment with Blair. Five foot tall. Nine <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So the two of them. And in New York City, yeah, it's always like four four stories, like yeah. uh, stairs. He's like this little skinny guy. And he, he and he and Blair were like moving couches down the stairs oh by themselves. That sounds dangerous. It was very dangerous. And she was like, "Well, I'm never moving again." I've yeah. decided. And so yeah, so we moved, put our stuff in storage. Uh, so we didn't move. We just put our stuff in storage, and then we're kind of like uh, rock and roll homeless, I guess, to some degree. Yeah. You know, like a. Uh, and so we um, we would go, you know, we were on tour for a really long time. Like I kind of stayed on tour continuously until the end of, so we did all of 12 and all of 13 basically. And I think that's where we really started to function more as a label. When we moved back, to, we got an apartment again in 13 in New York. And so Brooklyn Basement Records, it, it, we were in Brooklyn. We were living mm -hmm. in Brooklyn then. We had lived in the village before that, and then everybody else had already moved to Brooklyn. When we got yeah. back, we were like, "Oh, our friends are in Brooklyn. I guess yeah. there's nobody to have breakfast with here. We got to, we got to yeah. move." And so we, um, 
we got a duplex in Brooklyn. And so the basement was where my office was and where Blair's office was. And so we started running the business out of the basement. That's how it became Brooklyn Basement Records. And we just realized increasingly like that we were doing all, we were serving all the functions of a label. And like there were a handful of artists that we knew that we thought were really, really talented, but like couldn't get started. You know, like they were like, they needed something to, to help them start. And so we signed two artists in 2015 they were Mm -hmm. our first our first artists that we signed you know outside of my project uh tim olstad who's a pop singer incredible incredible vocalist and truett and truett's from my hometown in in Mm -hmm. marietta georgia um truett is a you know rock guitar hero and uh grew up like playing in the the blues bar kind of scene in my town and could you know go from playing an outcast song to a Stevie Ray Vaughan song, you know, a, yeah. a 30 minute rendition of an Allman Brothers song. He was this really great singer and great player who had been like, you know, honing his thing his whole life, but he didn't have like a, a shape for his project because he could do so many things. And uh-huh. so we were able to kind of help create the idea of his project from yeah. the ground. And so from the branding, the photos, the bio, the, yeah. the website, like none of it existed. No, no music existed. We helped with the songs from the beginning yeah. I produced the recordings and you know Blair in the beginning Blair also managed all the artists that we signed too so it yeah. was um we were kind of doing all the stuff in-house and getting them co-writes so we were functioning a lot like a you know as a publishing company as well because yeah. we signed everybody's publishing too so we were like getting people rights like the all the songs that were co-written on the, the first Truett recordings like I it was like I booked the co-writes yeah. for them so it was either you know, it was Truett and I, or Truett and I and other people, yeah. um, or me with other people on behalf of Truett. So we did a lot of that in the beginning. And now Truett writes his own songs and, uh, you know, learned through this process. Like, yeah. you know, it was like we were helping to develop the thing from the very beginning. So that's really where that starts, I guess, is, is 2015. And that's when we, we bought our house in Nashville in 2015. We okay. moved there. We hired Liz, who is the first employee of Brooklyn Basement Records. Oh, cool. And so Liz has been there ever since. And um, what motivated the move to Nashville? Did you feel like New York was just changing or like your family was changing? or? Well, we, first of all... Um, Taxes. <laughs> Taxes, I mean, yeah. I feel like. Yeah, no, it was... um. First of all, uh, Blair's family is still in Georgia. Okay. And so um, there's only a few places that you really can can function within the music industry. Like if you need to be part of the music industry community, there's only a few yeah. places really in the world to do it. And I was just reading that Ari Hurston, do you know his, I can't say his, how do you say his last name? Anyway, Hurstand. Hurstand. He's Hurstand. a good friend of mine. He was oh, opening he was, on one of these tours. Oh, 2011. I've been reading his book. And yeah. it's so good. But he says in there something about like, you know, if you want to be part of a community that's like really... Where, you know, these uh-huh. are some of the cities. Obviously, you can make music anywhere. Yeah. And there's always exceptions. But just that, like, you know. Yeah, we, in 2011, when we went back on tour, um, like, after taking a number of years um, off, like, trying to figure out how to navigate the, the digital landscape. Um, yeah. When that was really first starting. And I wasn't, like, you know, I had transitioned from, like, I couldn't sell any tickets to all of a sudden I was selling a lot of music. But we didn't know, because we were, like, living in this digital space. We didn't know yeah. what it meant. Um, like translating it to more like an actual yeah, ticket. getting people, people to come, come see outside. us. Yeah. And like no one had done that before. Like we were like, you know, we were at the beginning of people getting popular in the internet. So I'd never seen anyone do it. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of stopped touring for a bunch of years. And in 2011, when we went back out. Ari came out and opened oh, the first wow. like lap around the country for, for many months. Like we, we rode around in a van with Ari for a long time. Wow. Yes, yeah, so we're old friends. And so uh, anyway, we moved to Nashville. Um, I think because, yeah, we considered like... We considered coming to L.A. because I love L.A., um, but we went and, like, looked 
a, a house in Malibu, and Blair was like, I mean, this will be cool. You'll be sitting here writing songs looking at the ocean, but I'm going to be sitting in traffic going to my meetings. Yeah. And she's like, I feel like my whole life is going to be spent like schlepping places here. Yeah. You know, and like you'll get to live in this beautiful house uh, while I am waiting to get to whatever meeting <laughs> yeah. I have to go to. Yeah, LA can be a little bit isolating depending on what neighborhood. Where so, I feel like Nashville, just because it's... You can get it's, anywhere. Yeah, and I feel like in Nashville, I mean, I don't live there, but just having been there a bunch the last couple of years, I like run into people. Like I yeah. ran into you. I, you know, like I literally yeah. just like it's there's a definitely yeah. like a sense of. That was the funniest thing. Um, so for people who yeah. we, we, have, we haven't told this story. So I was in a coffee shop and I saw Emily and, and so Nate Lewick, who used to tour in my band, yeah. used to play in your band. Yes. And in so New York. I was like, excuse me, miss. Uh. <laughs> didn't you used to play music with nate lewis and uh which is probably like i would imagine the thing you are recognized for least in the world <laughs> yeah and specific i think you even said like the specific show yeah, well, like I, at gramercy in new york <laughs> city and i was like okay yeah yeah, yeah that's right was, i have played there yeah well, like, I, I just happened to that's where yeah. i saw you play and and you know the that's where I remembered you from. Yeah. It's like I've got this specific point in my life where I'm like, there she is. That's crazy. <laughs> we were in Nashville, and that happened in New York like seven years or six yeah. years before. So it was very striking. I love that about Nashville, though. Yeah. And it's so, like- I mean, also in New York, when I got to New York in 2001, increasingly, while it was still art people were being pushed out of neighborhoods that had been artsy and, and you know, a little dangerous before, after 9-11, like, everywhere that hadn't gentrified like kind of immediately gentrified so all of a sudden like the kind of new york of of patty smith's you know era like uh where there was like somewhere gritty that like you could get stabbed but you also (laughs) could like live for 200 dollars a month yeah that was that started to go away where like you know there was no more like like i had a friend who lived just off the bedford stop of the l at that point who paid two hundred dollars per month for his room um, and like, you know, I had friends living in the East Village that were paying $400, $300. And you could be yeah. a bartender and live very and cheaply make your rent and, and, and make be in your band or be a photographer or be a painter. And um, pretty immediately after 9-11, like within a year, I feel like the Lower East Side, the East Village, like there was no, there's really no place for that in New York. And as a result, a lot of the, the, the kind of scene of where like you could go out and like, I'll tell you a story. So Paul and I went out one night many, yeah. many moons ago and we went to see a friend's band play on Avenue B. And this is uh, so many uh, so many haircuts ago, I can't even tell you. <laughs> yeah. And so we go out, we see the band, and then somebody else we know and who's in another band is like, oh man, my cousin's playing up the street right after this. Do you want to go? So we go see another band. And then somebody says, oh, like my friend has this art show. So then we go to this big, I, I mean, it could have been a squat. Yeah. I don't know. It was like a townhouse, like a tall building where you walked in and every every floor was like different. You know, there were photographers, there were painters, there were bands playing on some of these floors and all sorts of different visual art was happening. And then we get to the top and we're talking, we're having a drink with somebody and they're like, oh man, you know, this guy is DJing down the street and we should go. He's like doing, you know, like doing a, you know, 70s funk, whatever, like night, whatever it was. We're like, oh, we'll go see that. And it went, so we went, we saw two bands, we went to an art show and, and we saw a guy DJ within like a thousand yards of each other in, in one evening. And we, we were talking to photographers, to painters, to sculptors, to DJs, to to bass yeah. players, drummers, guitar players. And, you know, we were all interacting. And I think that increasingly, um, as New York, as like international real estate money, like really flooded the market in New York and they, mm-hmm. uh, those neighborhoods got pushed farther and farther out and there were like less, there's less community, there were less people to interact with that were making art. Yeah. And so I kind of, yeah, I felt pretty isolated at, at a certain point because I didn't like m- my friends that were making music were moving away M- yeah. more and more. I had a, I mean I had a similar experience because uh, being in New York I remember when you're saying that it's just like brought back 
like this nostalgic <laughs> feeling because I similar I used to have nights like that where it was yeah. like oh go to Rockwood go to pianos go to Mer- uh, like I'd see a few yeah. bands that night or yeah. like art shows or yeah. you know I did cool. I did residencies when I was starting as a solo artist and trying to figure out like if I could be a solo artist yeah I did a residency at Cafe Vivaldi in um like in the West Village on I think that's Cornelia Street maybe I forget but that's it's gone now so it doesn't really matter it used yeah. to be there but it was like a little place that had a had a grand piano in it and you could sit. 25 people in it and they serve coffee and um so i did one one week i would play there and then the next year of the next week rather i would play upstairs at the living room and so i would alternate back and forth every other week doing those and then once a month i would play a show either at pianos downstairs at the living room or at the bitter end so i'd play like one hard ticket show a month and i would do four shows with my residencies yeah back and forth back and forth back and forth so I would see a lot of like you know I was walking down the street once and um and somebody said I was like sta- you know standing by Katz's Deli and somebody's like if you come to the living room later something incredible is going to happen and I was like <laughs> I knew enough at that point and had spent enough time there to know you know what was going to happen you know like something incredible like yeah, if, yeah. if they said if they said it was real you know, yeah something, I, and so and so we went and Nora Jones was just just was playing oh, wow. was playing at the living room and yeah so, and I walked in there and there's you know all these like you know mu- musicians that I admired mm-hmm. were in the room and it was like you know people who were farther along than me and people who were just starting but a, a bunch of other musicians yeah. and so that was that was cool I really loved that and it's something I love about Nashville like now there's especially I feel like it is it's an especially fertile time for for female songwriters and I and I love female songwriters and listen to yeah. them I'm, I'm in a I'm in a real female songwriter period in my life where I find that like people ask me what I'm listening to and it's only my the genre is women who live within five miles of my house yeah <laughs> it's like yeah I mean I feel like in Nashville there's just so much so yeah. many people doing like really inspiring yeah like work and, Ca- music Carol, and- Caroline Spence who's opening this tour right mm-hmm. now I was a fan before we became friends and now we're good yeah. friends but like she's on a group text on this group text there's Michaela Ann who I'm a super fan I was also now a very good friend of mine and Aaron Ray who is also unbelievable yeah and Kelsey Walden who's also unbelievable this is like this is just a people who hang out with yeah. each other and these are all like you know you could put those records on their you know put their most recent records on four in a row and like be flabbergasted by the whole thing yeah and these are just like people that i you know that i that i get to be around now and in new yeah. york i found that like i wasn't meeting other musicians like new musicians that were inspiring you yeah, know, and, in the same way yeah but, and like yeah. I'm, and now like you know at home i'll go like i'll go see caroline play in town you know whenever she plays in town I, you know yeah. and i bump into all of these sorts of like the parties that i go to the people i eat dinner with the people that come over to my house to you know that we yeah. hang out with and cook for and and you know like all of the people are doing stuff that like the it's like my community is built around people that are doing things that i'm really stoked on and yeah. so I think that's part of why we moved to Nashville, certainly, is like we wanted to be around people that were doing stuff that we were excited about. Yeah. Blair didn't want to be in traffic, so that's why we're not out here, because otherwise I, I would have probably picked to be here. But it's worked out great. Like, we've been yeah. able to expand the label, so now we have Liz was the first one, and then we hired Gray and Randolph. And so there's three full-time employees plus Blair mm-hmm. at the label. And, I mean, we really kind of doubled down on Nashville. We, like, you know, bought a place to put the, put the yeah. label, and we've been, like, really... You know, we had our baby there. She yeah. had her first so pan- it's your home. Yeah, she had her first yeah. pancake at Pancake Pantry, which oh is the most gosh. Nashville thing you can do. I don't think I've been to Pancake Pantry. I'll have to go <gasps> next, next time. Next time you come, we will go. Okay. We have to. Okay. I, I would love I that. Would love to. I love pancakes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I so I never liked pancakes, and then we started going to Pancake Pantry, and like, is it those really like thin ones that no, are they're, like they're just oh. they're perfect. I don't they're know. Perfect. They're just I like I've never liked. Pan- I've always thought they're like starchy and kind of gross. Yeah. And they're so 
good. Nice. It's crazy. I like I can't. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. I'm I, so glad. It is so fun. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Yes. And I am. Um, and cousin yeah, Carl. It's cousin thanks to cousin Carl, Carl. We weren't expecting him, but here he is. He surprised awesome. me. This is the best surprise of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To end our podcast, if you could have coffee, it doesn't have to be anything crazy with anyone, anywhere. What would your perfect coffee date be, I guess? Oh, man. I mean, today's coffee date with my cousin out of oh, nowhere was such an incredible surprise. You know, like I've probably yeah. had, uh, I don't know, like thousands of cups of coffee with Carl. But the cup of coffee that we had today was like maybe the, the happiest cup of coffee I've ever had in my yeah. life. Because, you know, you're, I'm on tour. I'm lonely. Yeah. I miss my wife. I miss my baby. And then I woke up this morning and I found out my cousin, one of my favorite people in the whole world, just yeah. showed up to surprise me. Like, this coffee is the... with your cousin Carl. That sounds awesome. Yeah, maybe that's that's, that's our next podcast. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> no, not Lee. I would love to have coffee with Levon, but you'd have to come too. I feel uh, like that's a perfect answer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there he is. I love him. So, well, thanks, Em. Appreciate you having us. Yes. If you want to hear Ron's music, check out his most recent album, Bone Structure, wherever you get your music. And check out brooklynbasementrecords.com for more information about Ron and Blair's company. And don't miss their advice by the slice section for some more of that insight into the industry you just heard Ron talk about. Thanks so much for listening and sharing. It makes me so happy to see you guys sharing the episodes online on your Twitter or your Facebook or Instagram. It's been so great. So I hope you keep listening and keep telling your friends. And don't forget to check out my Spotify playlist in the show notes. I'll be back next week with another episode to cure your caffeine withdrawal.